Um, I wonder whether you've ever had a really difficult choice to make. One of those choices where you've kind of perhaps overthought it. Anyone, anyone else an overthinker in the room? I'm an overthinker. If you've ever done a Myers-Briggs test, personality type indicator, which have value to a degree, don't be boxed by your type, but I am an INTJ, which is the rarest type, and therefore the best. Uh, <laughs> jokes, joking. Um, but I'm an INTJ, introvert, intuitive, thinking, judging, uh, not as in judging you, but as in making judgments. But I'm strong T, like very high on the T, very high on the I. Some of you already know, what is he talking about? But those of you who know what I'm talking about will know that therefore I am prone to overthinking. So last summer, when we unexpectedly came into some money, thanks to the Clergy Support Trust, conversation for another time, um, we had a decision to make. What do we do with this money? Do we save it? Or do we spend it? And if we're going to spend it, what do we spend it on? And the encouragement to us from a number of friends was, spend it. Buy something you would not normally buy yourselves. Treat yourselves. So we decided, yeah, we're going to spend it. And that came to the second decision. OK, we're going to spend the money. Are we going to spend it on, A, a new barbecue? Because our current barbecue is well, it's just a little camping one. So to feed five of us on this takes about nine hours. Never mind. Uh, or, or, which was my bid, pizza oven. Come on. Some of you thinking, oh, either would be fine. And, but I basically overthought it and came up with a cost-benefit analysis approach to both, <laughs> made a long list, and essentially concluded that we are way more likely to use the pizza oven than the barbecue. Because if you notice in England, it's not very sunny very often. So when it is, we all go crazy like this weekend. Um, long story short, um, the pizza oven won. And now I'm working on my beard for a new barbecue <laughs> as well. But we had the pizza oven out last night, and um, it's an absolute treat because, of course, it's the kind of thing we would never have bought ourselves, and it feels like a real gift. But it was an important decision. Um, I'm slightly jesting to warm you up to the thought this morning that presented in the book of Philippians is a question to us from Paul, which is simply this. Are you really willing to choose Jesus? At whatever cost. And as we'll see in a moment, he has done a cost-benefit analysis, essentially, is what he says, and concluded that to pay the price of following Jesus is worth everything. The series we're in, Philippians, uh, uh, we've called it Choose Joy because Philippians is known as the joy book. Uh, we've chosen this book, this series right now because it feels like it's a text for our times. Because what Paul says in this letter to the church in Philippi is that you are to choose joy, we are to choose joy despite our circumstances. Not when the world is as it should be, not when life is trucking along nicely as we'd like it to be, but in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the cost, in the midst of the persecution that they were facing, which we don't. But to choose joy again and again and again. And what you're going to see later in Philippians 3 is he talks about how he's done that what it looks like to be people who actually choose joy, how you do that. He's been warming us up for the first two letters. We're going to revisit them briefly in a moment to understand why he says what he says in chapter 3. But that's the question this morning for us. Are we willing to pay the price, to 
follow Jesus, make that choice, not just once, but every single day. One of the wins of the children being over at Diglas is I get to preach for ages. Uh, but I won't, don't worry. So this book, this letter, is a masterpiece, and it's a text for our times. What Paul is getting at here simply is this, that if you choose the way of Jesus, and to choose the way of Jesus, remember Jesus defined this as taking up our own cross and following him, death to self. If you choose the way of Jesus, Paul says, you will have joy. It's not might, maybe, sometimes it's you will have joy joy in Christ despite whatever is going on around you. Paul is making a big deal of joy. Joy is something more profound than happiness. We've talked about this before more recently. Happiness is something we derive from external things and external circumstances. I get really happy seeing one of those pizzas come out of our pizza oven. Oh, but joy is something in here. And joy comes only ultimately from God despite often, as I say, the external not being as it should be. Joy is a big deal for Paul for two reasons. Number one, it's a big deal for Jesus. If it's a big deal for Jesus, it's a big deal for Paul. And notice what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 10 through to 12. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, Jesus says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy, not his joy, your joy, our joy, may be complete. And the word there for complete is full, wholehearted, com- literally complete, all you need, everything, perfection. That his joy would be in us and therefore our joy in him would be enough. But notice it comes with an if. If you keep my commands, if you choose the way of Jesus, if you follow me as I've told you to, then here's the promise. You will know joy in all its completion. So for Paul, it's a a no-brainer. It's a starter. You start there. It's not up for discussion. But his experience is what he's speaking about in Philippians, is that when you do that, you do indeed find the completeness of joy. And that's the second reason why he makes such a big deal of it, is because that has become his experience. That's his testimony. That as he has chosen the way of Jesus, he discovered true joy. And he wants the same for those in this church in Philippi that he loves, that he's writing to. And one of the frameworks we have for making sense of the scriptures is, although this letter was written to the church in Philippi, Philippi, so it's very specific for them, in the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, it's also written to us today and therefore has life and truth for us to hear. Imagine Paul is writing to the church in Worcester. Choose Jesus, and you will have joy. To fully understand what Paul is saying and why, we do need to understand the context of this letter, who he's writing to, why he's saying what he does. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia, and it was full of retired soldiers and was well known for its patriotic nationalism. A bit like Salisbury, or somewhere like that. And we read about how Paul planted this church in Acts 16. If you go back and read the story, it wasn't straightforward. Planting churches is never straightforward, but this context was particularly hostile. They were loyal to Caesar. They were loyal to the Roman Empire. They were anti-Jesus. But he plants it anyway, 
despite the fierce resistance he's faced. And if you know the story, Paul and Silas end up in prison. It all goes a bit messy for him. But he's writing from prison to them to encourage them because the church that he planted is still there and he wants to strengthen them. Now, what's happened is Epaphroditus, uh, sorry, Epaphroditus has come from the church in Philippi with a financial gift from them to him to help him stay alive because in those days you had to pay to be in prison. That's the way it worked. So you could only stay in prison and not die if someone kept you alive. So here they are writing, uh, sorry, sending Epaphroditus with a financial gift. He takes the opportunity to send him back with this letter. A, to say thank you, but B, to say, given what I'm hearing, given what you're going through, here's some things I want you to hear from me. The apostle's teaching for you is this, he says. And this letter is essentially um, it's a series of short reflections that he puts together around this poem we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, that famous poem about Jesus. And each of these reflections, Paul uses key words, key ideas from that poem, and he weaves them through the whole text to paint this beautiful picture of what it looks like to live a life that is fully committed to participating in the story of Jesus. This wholehearted, whole-of-life participation, he says, is the key to knowing true freedom and joy in Jesus, regardless of the cost. And essentially, these vignettes, these reflections, when you all put them together, give us this glorious technicolor picture of what it is to follow Jesus faithfully in the world for the sake of it. So, if you've got a Bible, grab it, turn it open, um, turn it to chapter 1. Um, if it's on your phone, that's fine too. Um, and we're not going to go through this in detail, but I thought it'd be really helpful that we're halfway through this series. Just do a bit of a sweep back through, capture everything again, so that when we get to chapter 3 in a moment, we'll have like, fresh clarity on why Paul is saying what he's saying. Because as I just said, chapter 1 and 2 lead into chapter 3 and the structure of his letter. So chapter 1 begins with this prayer of gratefulness. Thank you, God. He says, thank you, Philippians, for the generosity, for your faithfulness, for your financial support. But he very quickly turns the attention to them. And what he wants them to know is his deep confidence that God is at work in him and in them, despite their circumstances. He has known new joy, fresh joy, deep joy, despite being imprisoned. All sorts of crazy things happen while he's in this prison. Again, go back to Acts 16. But actually what he wants them to understand is, I can see, in other words, he says, that even though it's hard for you, God is at work. I've heard the stories from Epaphroditus. He's told me of your faithfulness. I want you to know that when you are faithful and obedient to Jesus, everything else takes care of itself. That's the call on the disciple, isn't it? You and I, faithfulness and obedience, the fruitfulness comes from the Spirit. Joy is a gift from the Spirit. And he articulates really powerfully what he sees essentially as a win-win for him. Really profound insight into actually the way in which I think we are to understand our lives. For Paul, his life, whether in the present or the future, is all about knowing the love of Jesus. And he doesn't see it as this life and then that life. He sees it as his life, with death briefly interrupting it. That's his perspective. He's got this clarity of vision. He understands. And therefore, he says in Philippians 1, verses 21 to 24, for me, so he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? Notice the choice question here again, a choice. I do not know, he says. He's extrovertly processing there. I am torn, he says, between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, he says. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. For Paul, uh, his desire is to die so he can be with Jesus. But his missionary apostolic instinct is, it's better for me to be alive, released from prison, so that I can plant more churches. But either's a win. If I die, I'm with Christ. If I'm released, the kingdom grows. Win, win, nothing to lose, all in, let's go. Notice that train of thought. Dying for Jesus is not the real sacrifice for Paul. The real sacrifice for him is staying alive. And I kind of read that and thought about that and thought, is that my perspective on my life? I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it is. What about you? In chapter 2, Paul then uh, turns his attention even more to the Philippians. And, and essentially, he's trying to give them a picture of how do you do this. And he starts by saying, Jesus has done it. Look at the example of Jesus. He has already modeled for us what I'm talking about. And so he says to us and to them, we need to have the same mindset of Jesus, the same approach, the same response. Do what Jesus did. So Philippians 1, verse 27, he says this, whatever happens, whatever happens, whether you're persecuted and die, whether I'm executed or released, whatever happens, whatever happens in our lives, guys, here's what Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What an assignment. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live as Christ lived. And then the poem comes at the beginning of chapter 2. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up and became nothing. Jesus lays down his life. He chooses for us to stay and to, to suffer and to die. And Paul then says essentially this in Philippians, the beginning of Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then notice verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Those few verses is essentially the role description for the church. If you see who Jesus is and what he's done, if you get that to pursue that life together and individually is the pathway to joy, then here's what you need to do. Here's what needs to be like your kind of metrics for gauging how well you're doing. How are we doing, church? Do we have encouragement in, together from being united with Christ? Are we of one mind? Are we together pursuing the Spirit? Do we collectively and individually do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? I don't know. Discuss in your life groups this week. Do you get what Paul is saying here? He's saying, look, guys, here's the benchmark. Jesus. But let me tell you, that is the way to do it. Even though it feels so hard, even though it feels so costly, let me tell you, I'm more convinced, he says, than ever. Despite being in prison, I am more alive, more free, because this is the way. 
The way of Jesus is costly, but it's so, so rewarding. It's worth everything. This poem that follows is this condensed version, really, of the gospel and invites us to essentially imitate Jesus. And Paul has the audacity, doesn't he, to say elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a, that's a humble confidence. I can, he said, I, with integrity, I can say to you, what I'm trying to do is that. I think you should copy me if you can't copy Jesus. This is the invitation. Choosing joy sounds like a great, pithy sermon series title, right? Choose joy, yeah. I'm going to choose joy on a sunny day. It's easy. No, no, Paul says choosing joy means suffering and dying to yourself and living as Jesus lived in and for the world. It's going to cost you everything. But let me tell you, he says, done a cost-benefit analysis. It's worth it because that is the only way to true joy. So we come to chapter 3, and Hannah is going to read the first 11 verses for us. Powerful, important verses, which some theologians would say is the crux of this letter. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, even though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thank you. So the first six verses are context, really, for verses 7 to 11, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our uh, time together. But to understand those helps us make sense of why Paul is saying what he's saying. So he's referring in those first six verses to the Galatian Christians who are still giving him grief, okay? So in parallel to the Philippi story, there's the Galatia story. Um, and essentially what was going on there was that Gentile converts, people who weren't Jewish, people who'd come to faith, were um, being um, told by the Jewish converts that they too needed to be circumcised, which was an Old Testament thing. It's very complicated, don't worry about it too much. But essentially Paul has ruled, no, you don't. 
The new covenant means they don't need to be circumcised. That's the old covenant discussions over in his mind, but it's still warring, this little debate. And he's not very impressed with them. Have you noticed the language here? Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. It's kind of like Paul is in full flow at this point. He's not happy. And he's trying to set up a contrast between that way of thinking, which is about rules and religion, and the chosen path of submission as worship, which is to come. The situation, Paul says, reminds him, essentially, of what he was like before his conversion. He's doing the self-deprecating, I know what I'm talking about, because I used to be like that. But I made a choice, and that changed everything. And so he says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, like every other Jewish boy, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was part of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, in regard to the law a Pharisee. As for zeal, he says, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, based on the law, faultless. But before Christ, he says, missing the point entirely. And so he says, don't be like that. Don't be people who lean into religion and rules to try to kind of control the environment around you. Trust in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. I've seen the difference. I've gone from being that to being this, he says. Here's what it looks like, verses 7 to 11. And notice three things that I think we need to see this morning if we're to understand what it means to pursue, to choose joy. Number one, he made a choice. You were expecting that, weren't you? Because I've been priming it right from the very beginning. Barbecue, pizza oven. Way of Jesus, not the way of Jesus. Pick well. Notice Paul essentially has done his own cost-benefit analysis, his profit and loss analysis. That's the language he uses. And he concludes that the benefits of going all in with Jesus far outweigh the costs. Verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He had everything, but he considers all of that a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. You gain Christ by giving up all of that. And he says, let me tell you, that is far better that way. He made a choice. Not just once, but over and over and over and over again. If you're anything like me, it's at least once a day. And on a bad day, many times. Particularly if I've not had enough sleep. And here he is, reflecting on that choice, reaffirming it, and commending this way of life to the church in Philippi. Now, they probably heard this before. But remember, he's got this fresh insight, so he's saying it again. Have you heard me say these things before? Yes, you have. Some of you have been around a long time. Um, Someone famously said, famously, but in the context of this church, said, Rich, you've only got one talk. You basically do the same version over and over again, just different kind of bits of it, which is probably true. It's because ultimately there is only one talk. Jesus. 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 Paul says it's really clear when you look at it. It's a complete no-brainer. Are you going to choose Jesus or not? And his version of choosing Jesus is Jesus at the expense of everything else. It doesn't mean you necessarily don't have them, but you're willing to choose Jesus and give up those things if that's what it takes. So notice what he says in verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is worth everything. I've given everything up 
for that. Let me tell you, I made the choice again and again. Now, the term garbage is actually more crude than that. My children thought this was brilliant when I was telling them this. Theologians generally agree that it's better translated excrement, but it's been made nice in English for us in our Bibles, so we have rubbish or garbage. But actually, Paul's saying literally it's crap. That's why I can say it in church, because it says it in the Bible. Um, but that's stark language, along with dogs and mutilators of the flesh. Paul's trying to make this contrast. It's all crap. It's just, it's just hesed. It's stuff. It's not worth anything. But actually, it's more than that. It's actually, it, some of it is revolting to him. Some of his old life, his old ways, his old things are revolting to him. Paul, as I said, had everything. He was an A-lister celebrity in his world. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had status and wealth and power. People were terrified of him. The early church freaked out when they heard that Saul, as he was first called, was coming after them. But then he has an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus that literally changes everything. It's a complete revelation. It's a complete U-turn. And he goes from being arch... um, kind of critic of Jesus, arch-persecutor of the church, to being its principal apostle, the one who literally gives up everything and does ultimately give up everything for Jesus. And he has, therefore, huge credibility to say all of this. Notice, over and over again in this passage, he says it's all about Jesus, for Christ, for Christ, for Christ. He says it seven times. Whenever you see something seven times, you should be thinking, hmm, biblical number of perfection. Paul's deliberately writing here for Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus. Question, have we made that choice today? When did we last consciously, intentionally make that choice? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Number two, the second thing I think we see from Paul is total commitment. Uh, I've already alluded to this, but this isn't half-hearted, this isn't on a good day, this is like all in, every day, whatever the cost, Paul. And you could be tempted, couldn't you, to say, well, yeah, but that was Paul. He doesn't understand. My life is dot, dot, dot. Paul, if he was here, would be like, ah, 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 system error. It's not how it works. Jesus gave you everything. Jesus went all in for us. The very least we can do is go all in back. And so he's like, that's what I've done. I've seen it. I've made that choice. I got it. Revelation of who Jesus is, what he did, how he lived, my response is to do the same. So the key phrase here, and that's probably the whole of this chapter, is in verses 8 to 9, where it says, he does all of this that I may gain Christ. I've, I, I've considered all of this a loss so that I can gain Christ and be found in him. And in the Greek, that's better translated, uh, that I would have a whole life transforming knowledge gained through experience. Which is a bit wordy, right? Which is why it's simplified in the English, but let me read that again. He's saying, for me, I give it all up so that I can have a whole life transforming knowledge of Jesus gained through an experience of him. Do you want that? A whole life transforming knowledge, true knowledge of Jesus, not just information about him, but truly knowing him, gained through an experience of him that changes everything. That's what Paul says. I've had that I've given everything else up so that all I have is that because that's all I need and all I want. And that is how you find joy. 
He, stu- he, he gets that it, it's to be known and know relationally, experientially, personally. That's why we don't rush those moments of song worship. We wait on the Spirit, because it's one of the ways that we know that we're known. And Paul is basically really clear here, that actually if you want to know Jesus and the joy he has for you, that's the way. That is the only way. So verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This isn't just I want to know him, I want to understand him, I want him to know me. I actually want to know him so well that actually I will do what he did, that I will participate in his story by participating in his suffering. And I want to do it such a way that I give up my life confident that there will come a day when I will have it given back to me at resurrection. There's nothing to lose and everything to gain. I'm in, all in. It's a win-win. I've got not, I can't lose. I want to know everything. I want to understand Jesus. Paul, in other words, I think would say this to us. You don't find joy in Christ by avoiding suffering and cost. You find joy in Jesus through it. So if you're suffering today, if following Jesus in this life is costly, uh, it doesn't feel like it, but you're on the right road. <laughs> you're doing really well. We get into trouble when we try to avoid suffering and avoid cost. Just dial it down a bit. Not so much today. 80% commitment. It doesn't work. Paul's like, it's 100%. You'll be 100% in. Number three, and finally, um, it has to be a way of life. It has to be a way of life. Paul is really clear in the second bit of this section uh, that actually it's not a one-off a choice. It's not a moment in his diary. You know, he doesn't just go, well, on the road to Damascus, I made a choice, and now I'm fine. He actually says, I, I started on that road. That's where I made my, the first time I made this choice. But over and over and over again, as he sees more clearly, as he understands more, the more he leans in, the more he embraces suffering, the more he gives it all up and trusts and sees the fruit of that in his life, the more convinced he is than ever that it's the way of life. And so he keeps on leaning in. He keeps on choosing. He keeps on laying down his life. He keeps on suffering. He keeps on trying. He keeps on encouraging. He keeps on, keeps on, keeps on, because that is the way you take hold of the life that Jesus has for you. It has to be a posture. It has to be a default setting, a way of life, practice-based faith. We do the things we do so that we're, we're found in him. And the more we live into him, the more we can find all of these things. So verse 12, I have, he says, not that I have already obtained all of this. In other words, guys, don't, don't put me on a pedestal now. Don't think, ooh, well, Paul's got there. Paul's at the finish line, cheering us on. No, no, Paul would be like, I'm somewhere in between giving up that life and fully taking up this life. But what I'm telling you is, I consider all of that loss for the sake of knowing Jesus and having all of this. So I'm not going back. No turning back. However tempting this life is, and it's tempting, right? Comfort, security, wealth, relatively, pizza ovens, All of that is tempting because that's what's promoted. That's what we're told we need. But actually, Paul's like, no, no, it's all crap. Sorry. No. Because this, he says, when you get this, this is all you need. This is all that's worth living for. Count all that loss. 
for the sake of knowing that. And so I'm not there yet, but I've decided I'm never going back. And so I press on. I strive. That's the language here. It's athletic language. He's using the metaphor of a run, a race. He uses that over and over again in his writing. I don't consider myself, he says, verse 13, to have yet taken hold of it. But one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining what is towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. He has a singular focus. He has a clarity of purpose. He has this eternal perspective. And he says, I'm, I'm going to go for that. And the prize, the prize is given to us on our day when we pass from this life into the next. When we're crowned. When we finally find ourselves in the presence of God with a glimpse of what is still to come when Jesus is raised, uh, sorry, when Jesus returns and all are raised from the dead. The prize is the day that you pass on into that, that world. Some of us will just limp across the line, that's okay, because life is hard. But that's what Paul says, at whatever the cost, I'm going to run for that. Because then, then, as I pass through death into the new world that is to come, I will have it all. And that's all I need. And so we say in Church of England funerals confidently that someone may be resting in peace, but when Jesus returns, they will rise in glory. And between now and then, Paul says, choose the way of Jesus, because that's the way to joy. He wants his joy to be made complete in us for us, that we would be alive as God intended. So three things. Make a choice. Total commitment. It's a way of life. And we're in this together. We need each other, and we need the Spirit of God, don't we? So, we have a bit of time this morning. What I'd love us to do is just for a moment, either on your own, if you're more on the introvert scale, this might be more you, just take a few moments to be still and to think and reflect Maybe write some things down. What's God been saying to you? Where are you at with all of this? What, what kind of light bulb went on? Um, what's annoyed you about me? Did I make the wrong choice? Should I have chosen the barbecue? Maybe start there, but move on if that's where you get to. Um, or maybe turn to a couple of people around you and say, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what that passage has spoken to me this morning. Can we do that? Because we're in it together. We need each other's help. And then we're going to pray together. Okay? Go.